it's interesting because a lot of people, like for myself, I thought about my ADHD as a weakness for a really long time, that it was the reason that I was struggling because I couldn't focus as unreliable as undisciplined, all these things. I could point to ADHD and be like, well, it's because I'm this, right? Like I can blame that. If only I was normal. And the reality is that like in every aspect of life, everything is, is a coin. There's two sides to it. And we get to choose which side of the coin that we, we look at. It's the yin and the yang, the very like the Zen um, philosophy of like duality. And if we look at ADHD and say, that's my weakness, well, on the other side of it, it could also be your strength. If you can figure out what aspects of it, how to leverage it. And when I look at ADHD, there's a couple of aspects to it that make it that are like superpowers, truly. Right, like the ability to pattern rec recognize is like off the charts for people with ADHD. The ability to um, ideate, the, the ability to get hyper-focused and obsessed down like in an extreme state on a singular topic for extended periods of time. Like these things, when we when we utilize these strengths, we, we can't be matched. But the problem is a lot of life and a lot of what we're told in school and, and, and that makes for a good employee do not leverage these these things, these aspects of our personality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. In today's episode, I am speaking with Anthony Ficino, someone who I've actually been following for a while now on the socials because I think he has a lot of interesting nuggets to share and why I think this could be useful for a bunch of people out there who, if you're a creator, founder, and entrepreneur trying to get off the ground and build something great, I think what he has to say and how what he uses as well in on his side to build uh the models and processes around him to give him that success is super interesting. So in this episode, we talk about his journey from being $80,000 in debt to building multiple seven-figure businesses, but more interestingly, how he was able to do this by using some very key and important mental models, systems, and processes to get him there. We talk about Paul Graham's maker versus manager schedule, the ICE model that he developed, getting into the flow state and being hyper-focused building a second brain, priority management, the role that entropy plays in our lives, the symbolism of money, and much more. But more than anything else, I think I wanted this episode to be more about the tools and processes rather than his success, but also really dig deep into how anyone can use these systems, models, processes, and everything in between to help them with their own pursuits. So if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast and all platforms. It helps bring more content like this to your ears and helps us engage in insightful conversations so you can keep learning and being better every day. So with that, I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Anthony Vicino. I wanted to, uh, you know, learn a bit more about you and I've been digging into you quite a lot. Um, so I wanted to sort of maybe paint the, the picture for, uh, lay of the land a little bit. Do you want to sort of just give a quick intro about your background? Because it's an interesting background. I, I think a lot of people will probably resonate with, um, what you've gone through, you know, a lot of hardships, up, ups and downs and, and maybe, yeah, just hear about, uh, the journey you've been on so far and especially dealing with ADHD and, and how, how you've been able to sort of cope with that um, sort of uh, during this time. Yeah, I think from like a really high level, the the first thing to, like you said, I have ADHD. You got to know that about me. Like that's 
a key component of the story because uh, it's something that's really uh, kind of pointed the direction of my life in a lot of ways. So I came out of high school and I was like, well, what do you do in this world? And the, the recurring theme that everybody's telling me is you go to college. I was like, okay, I'll go to college. So I go to college, get these degrees, like struggle my way through it. I'm, I can ace any test, but I'm like a horrible student in every other capacity, right? So I'm barely getting by. And then I get out of school and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? And everybody's like, oh, you go and get a job. <laughs> so I went and got jobs and I was like chronically getting fired from like menial jobs. I was working at like Target and, and Staples and I was working landscaping and like, and all of these as aspects of life, I was just getting fired <laughs> and it was frustrating. It was disappointing because I felt like I had this potential, but I couldn't really like tap into it. And so I, I just kind of went my own direction for a while. And I said, okay, screw all this. I'm just going to go and I'm going to be a rock climber. That's, that's what I was, that's what I'm going to do with my life. So for like the better part of my twenties, I just traveled the world as a professional rock climber, which sounds really grandiose and really cool, but it really just means that you live in a van and you sleep in the dirt a lot and you climb on rocks, but it doesn't make a lot of money. And that was, that wasn't so so much problematic for me until I tried to marry this woman and I went to her parents and I sat down with her, her mom and her dad. And I asked them, I was like, can I marry your daughter? And her mom, who's like this type a executive powerhouse woman, like doesn't take crap from anybody. She looks me dead in the eyes and with like no irony is like, how are you going to provide for our daughter? And she says it in a way where it's like, she severely doubts that I have the capacity to do so. And it was the first moment in my life where I was like, Oh, Oh, I, <laughs> I don't have any way of providing much less for myself or another person. So I was like really slapped with the reality of like my situation at that point, which was, um, I'm not much, I'm not much used to society at the moment. Like me just kind of Peter panning my way through life, climbing on rocks was really fun for me. Mm -hmm. And it was great and it was fulfilling because I got to challenge myself and grow in that pursuit. But it wasn't something that brought value to the world in an exchange. Like I was starting to get to this point where I realized like, oh, I don't, I don't necessarily want to go through life not having added any value or having made a positive impact. And so coming off of that conversation, the, the delusional side of me, uh, decided, you know, you know who makes money is Stephen King and J.K. Rowling. They make a lot of money. And I was like, I could, I could do that. I could be a science fiction writer. I could write fantasy. Seems really easy. Like, this is just like how, like, my mind works where I'm like, I could do that. So I started writing. Like, the next day, I started writing 3,000 words every single day for the next year. It's a lot of words. And in that process, the, the woman that I was going to get married to, she ended up leaving me. And I found myself in the back of the van a lot of debt, life just not going well. The writing hadn't really taken off yet. I was really just getting my reps in at that point. And it was from that, that low point where a friend came to me, he saw me in my sorry, sad state. And he's like, dude, we got to do something to change your, your situation. And he's like, let's go build a business together. Which for me at that moment, I had never even thought about building a business. Like I wasn't entrepreneurial at all. Like I wasn't the guy that had a, a lemonade stand. I wasn't buying things on, on Facebook marketplaces and flipping it on eBay. Like I wasn't that guy, so, but it, when you're at rock bottom, you really have no other option. And so you're willing to try anything. And I think in a lot of ways, that's, that was a blessing for me is that I was at like absolute rock bottom. 
so that I was willing to try something that maybe when I was more comfortable, I never would have. Because for a lot of people, I think they get into this rut of life where things are good, but not great. Like they have a good job, but not a job that they love and ignites them with passion. Right. They have a good relationship but not a great relationship with their family or their friends. And so but because they have so much to lose, they're not really willing to risk that for the potential of maybe getting something great in return. Where I, for me, I was like, well, I got nothing. I, I'll go for it. So and it ended up working out. We started a window washing company. It did really well. And that really sparked this, this love for me of uh, entrepreneurship and just business. I didn't ever realize that I had. And so over the last 10 years, that's what I've been doing is just building various businesses. A lot of them, different ones, like some are services, some are products, some digital products. And these days in the last couple of years, we've been focusing more on content creation, podcasting, writing books, um, YouTube, and just putting out more content. And there's, there's some strategic reasons for that, but also at the core of it, like when I think of who I am as a person, I think of myself as a storyteller and a creator first and foremost. So that's kind of the really long winded answer to get to, to where we are. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And, uh, you know, I, I want to double click on sort of that awakening experience for you, because I think there's a lot of people who are sort of going through lives. They're pretty living a pretty cushy job. They have, you know, they have, you know, they're living a good life. They've been able to sort of, um, you know, travel and do this and do that. But they sometimes feel it's sometimes they don't get fulfilled or they feel unfulfilled in many of their roles, even though it's sort of paying the bills and sort of they're sort of just humming through life. Uh, but what was it for you that said, look, you, if you're not contributing to the world, why didn't you just sort of get that job? Was it because of like, you just couldn't hold it down and didn't interest you. Uh, because I, I think that awakening experience where you realize, huh, like if I need to provide for someone, I need to do something that's worthwhile, but I could easily get a job, right? I could have just easily just, you know, work at the Kmart or something and just get a, a steady income. But why did you just decide to sort of just go, you know, full at it, full gas into sort of building a business? Is it something that, you wanted just to be an entrepreneur deep inside or, you know, you just felt like this was a bit of your calling. Well, it's, it's interesting because I definitely never thought that I was going to be an entrepreneur. Like that really didn't play into the mental calculus. It was, it was something interesting, which was like a lot of my twenties were spent rebelling against external authority and the idea of like anybody telling me what to do. And that was really at the core of mm. why I was such a bad employee is I had a lot of ego and I had this, this chip on my shoulder that I didn't want anybody to like direct me or my time or my efforts and my energies. Like it just, it never settled with me, but I didn't realize that in lieu of, you know, external authority, if I could not, um, you know, discipline myself and be the authority of myself, then I was going to find myself in this murky middle. And so that's where I really struggled was like, I rebelled against external discipline and authority, but then I also didn't step in and fill that void for myself. And the changing point really was, you know, when things got really bad and I realized things have to change, but going into entrepreneurship was really just a byproduct of the knowledge that I knew I would never be happy in life working for somebody else. Like I knew that I could just, for whatever reason, I had never been able to um, work hard for anybody else, like in any capacity, even if it was a job that I liked for people that I liked, I could just never motivate myself to be interested in it. 
for long enough to, to help them succeed. And, but when it was for my own projects, when I was writing a book or, you know, starting a business, it's like suddenly the work became very, very easy. And that was, that was a blessing that I discovered that because if I hadn't discovered that, then I might've just kept going through life thinking that like, I was just a really lazy person. <laughs> yeah, no, it totally makes sense. And, and I think that strikes strongly with me as well, because I think there's an element of like, you know, you have autonomy over yourself, but you also have like, okay, well, I can now build this. I can pour all of my energy into it. And this is for me, it's not for anyone else. And fact that and, and you know you sort of live and die by the sword at that point right and it's really? clearly up to you um whether you want to actually want to you know succeed or not because at that point you have full control over your destiny and you're not really working for a paycheck per se but at the same time i feel like there's so much more room for being the best that you can be um but it is a big risk right and so you know i think to your point there is a lot of risk it's high reward high um high risk but I think at the end of the day, um, it def definitely pays off. How, how did the ADHD sort of intertwine with all of that? Because ADHD is a serious problem. It's really hard and to, to really focus on obviously one single thing at any given time. You talk a lot of this in your videos and, and sort of in your, on the material that you produce and everything like that, but maybe you want to just add a bit more color to how you know, the experiences of ADHD, but also how you dealt with it and how you converted that into something, you know, instead of, uh, you know, fighting against it, using it as a, uh, as a tool. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting because a lot of people, like for myself, I thought about my ADHD as a weakness for a really long time, that it was the reason that I was struggling because I couldn't focus as unreliable as undisciplined, all these things I could point to ADHD and be like, well, it's cause I'm this right. Like I can blame that if only I was normal. And the reality is that like in every aspect of life, everything is, is a coin. There's two sides to it. And we get to choose which side of the coin that we, we look at it's the yin and the yang, the very, like the Zen um, philosophy of like duality. And if, we look at ADHD and say, that's my weakness. Well, on the other side of it, it could also be your strength. If you can figure out what aspects of it and how to leverage it. And when I look at ADHD, there's a couple of aspects to it that make it that are like superpowers truly, right? Like the ability to pattern rec recognize is like off the charts for people with ADHD, the ability to um, ideate, the, the ability to get hyper-focused and obsessed down, like in an extreme state on a singular topic for extended periods of time. Like these things, when we, when we utilize these strengths, we, we can't be matched. But the problem is a lot of life and a lot of what we're told in school and, and, and that makes for a good employee, do not leverage these, these things, these aspects of our personality. And so we go through life thinking, oh, I'm, I'm a failure. I don't fit in. And like, I'm not, this is a weakness because you're playing the game wrong. You're playing the, the wrong strategy, the wrong it's like, you know, you, you get to be the, the RPG and you get to make your character. And it's like you built out this badass barbarian and now you are in a situation where you need to have like wizarding powers and you're just a big, strong barbarian. And you're like, well, I, I can't throw fireballs. Right. And so in that context, you're like, I, this is, I'm, I'm not cut out for this world, but there is a context in which being the barbarian is a really good thing. So you just have to go one and find the games that lend themselves to your, your strengths. 
And then you need to, and this is the cheat code that I don't talk about as much as I should. And I probably need to like start baking this into the content a bit more is understanding mm -hmm. that you will never be good at those things that you are inherently bad at as somebody with ADHD, like no matter how hard you try, like you will probably always really suck at them. And so you can either try to, you know, try and shore that up and make, make yourself better at them, which is something that is, you know, worthwhile. Or you find people that are really good at those things that you really suck at and you build out your team in a way where you don't have to do those things that you would naturally be disinclined towards. And then you focus on what you are great at. And that was the great thing about entrepreneurship is you can build your team in that way, right? Like in the beginning, you're kind of doing everything. But as soon as you start bringing people on, the first people you should bring are the ones who have collaborative skill sets, the ones who you look at and you're like, you're really good at the things that I suck at. And together, we're going to be way more powerful than we would be if we were uh, individuals. And so that's really big is just recognizing you do have superpowers. You need to start finding the games where you can leverage that superpower to your advantage and then find people who complement your superpowers so that in those contexts of life where, you know, there, there's going to be these areas where you can't just ignore them, right? Like the financial side of like the minutia of accounting and spreadsheets, like in a business that has to get done. I hate it. Like, but if I have a partner who loves that stuff, awesome. Now we're cooking. I can focus on the things that I'm, I'm really good at. So just recognize, I think with entrepreneurship that you can, you can change that game. And most people, I don't think that they realize that, especially when they're working a job for somebody else, because that person's telling them what your job role is and what's expected. And so you can get very easily get, just trying to squish your, your square peg down a, down a round hole. And you said something earlier that I wanted to circle back to really quickly, because it was a lesson that I learned the hard way um, is when you first get into this like creatorpreneur world or entrepreneurship where you're taking full accountability and responsibility for everything. That's really cool in the beginning. And then as you start to scale, everybody thinks like, oh, I need to hire people and bring them onto the team. And what I found was it's very easy to hold myself accountable and motivate myself. However, as soon as we started hiring and we have some companies that have 20, 30 employees, as soon as we started doing that, I started to realize now those employees all have power over me. And in a weird way, like it went from being like in the beginning, it was just me or maybe a few other partners. It went from being something where I, I'm in complete control and accountable to myself and I don't have to answer to anybody else. And then you hit this, this point where now you have people that are depending on you and it, it's almost like you've come full circle. So that like that authority or that accountability that you maybe rebelled against externally, it comes back. And so it's just something to think about is like a lot of people when they, they consider building a business, they think I need to have a lot of employees. I want to build a hundred employees, 200,000, whatever. It's like, mm, maybe not like, I've, I've come to the realization that the businesses I enjoy building the most are small teams, really small teams, where the line of communication is direct between me and, you know, the person. So like, that's less than seven people per team, because you can't handle a node of you know, network larger than that. So just something to think about. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's an interesting point, because you, you are obviously trying to build out and scale because you know, you can't do everything at once and you want to make sure that you can, you know, do the things you're good at, but also delegate the things that you're don't, you're either bad at or you just don't want to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so 
you know, going back to the ADHD, I mean, if, cause I don't know how one would feel because, you know, I can imagine, and I don't know if I have stints of ADHD, but I feel like you can always, you, there's a lot of context switching. And sometimes if you're not um, engrossed in a topic or uh, an idea, then you just move to the next thing and the next thing. But for people who can use this as a superpower, it's like, well, if you really love what you're doing and you really enjoy the task that you're doing, you're going to go full gas and super zone into that. Is that how you feel like? when you're in the moment, when you're creating podcasts, when you're doing things that really give you enjoyment and fulfillment, it's like, I don't want to switch. I can, but I just, I feel, I like this doing, I like doing this so much that I'm just going to provide hyper-focus into what I'm doing right now. Is that how mm -hmm. it feels like? Totally. It's interesting because even those things that I'd love to do, like the podcast or writing a book or like scripting out a video or like whatever, those are all really hard, difficult tasks cognitively. And so there's always this resistance mm -hmm. to get into the activity. And this is, this is a pretty well-known, um, aspect of the flow state, which in the flow state is like the kissing cousin of hyper-focus are very, very similar in a lot of ways. Um, one of the, the hallmarks of the flow state is that like that first 15, 20 minutes as you get into the flow state is filled with discomfort and frustration and, uh, generally like ah, uh, this is wrong. It feels bad. Right. And once you push through that, then you can start descending into the flow state. And so just recognizing like the beginning of any activity is going to be filled with this, this, this easily distractible nature, like, cause it, it, the nature of the task that you're about to dive into is hard, cognitively demanding. And therefore your body is trying to rebel against that. Cause your brain is lazy. Your brain doesn't want to do that stuff. But once you push into it, then you start to get into that, that flow state of like, oh, this is very fulfilling and engaging and I, and I enjoy that. So for me, like I really struggle to get started on a thing, but once I'm in it, then it's very, very hard to get me out of it. And I, and I want to stay there until it's either completed or until I reach like a natural um, conclusion point. And so I think for most people, you, the, the takeaway here is just to recognize that it's usually better to batch activities into like 90 minute increments, especially if it's deep work, very cognitively demanding, like give yourself an hour and a half to two hours. Two hours is nice because it gives you enough time to kind of get into that deep state and then 90 minutes to like kind of stay in those waters. But we also, we also all have like a finite amount of uh, cognitive energy we can put towards a task at any one period of time. And so instead of burning your candle out by doing like a seven hour straight with no breaks marathon, you know, it's better just to chunk it. And what I find with the chunking is it makes me more excited. It makes it easier to reignite the next time I want to get into the activity. So one of the hacks when I was writing a lot of novels and writing books is to always just end in the middle of a chapter in the middle of a sentence, like end in a really exciting spot. So the next day when you pick it back up, you're immediately just like back in and you're like, oh yeah, this is awesome. And you just keep going. Right. So don't never end your writing session at the end of a chapter, <laughs> always end in the middle of a paragraph or a sentence. And then it just makes it that much easier to pick it back up. The, I feel like there's a, something that's, I think it's like a Hemingway bridge or something where you're trying to, uh, Ernest Hemingway tried to do this, where he would just leave something on a cliffhanger and you're yeah. like, oh, okay, I know what I want to do now. And then it sort of gets you excited for the next day. So yeah. you're sort of ready to go out of bed. That's, that's a really cool technique. With the, with the hyper-focus, 
how would someone go about doing that? Like, I think everyone wants hyper-focus at the end of the day, yeah. but it's like, it's not easy to attain. So totally. how do you best put yourself in that situation? Is it really just a, a con convincing yourself, look, I just need to do this. And I just, I need to just go through that resistance for a little bit and then I'll get into it because I, don't I feel like there's a lot of people, including myself, like sometimes it's just some of those days where you're like, huh, I just don't want to do this. I have to do this. And then after like 30 minutes, I'm still, I still don't want to do this. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> how do you get into um, that hyper-focus mode? Is there a recipe or it just, you just like, it ebbs and flows and you just have to like, you know, just go with the flow and sometimes it doesn't come and sometimes it does. How, how do you make that a bit more uh, deterministic? Yeah. So first I would say, just recognize that like we are complex machinery. And so there is no button that we can push and be like, boom, we're in it, right? Some days it's just, it's hard mm -hmm. and it's always hard. And on those days, it's less about um, getting into the state of hyper-focus and more about becoming the person who shows up regardless and does the work. And that's like an important aspect as well. But within this, there are things that we can do. Our goal is to, to prime the, the pump and prime the situation so that we have the best likelihood of going in the, in the flow or in the hyper-focus and staying there. And so there's some aspects of this to consider. One would be your physiological state, right? Like your physio physiological state, like hyper-focus and flow is a, um, a neurological state of being. Right. And that is rooted in our chemistry. And so like at the end of the day, like we are just these squishy bags of juicy computer. And if we can understand what underlies the, the, the processes, then we can kind of prime things in our favor. So three things to really consider when it comes to getting into deep, deep work is you have to control for your rest state, your active state and then kind of like your recovery state. So those are like your sleep, your nutrition and your exercise. Those things truly help because you're getting your body primed into an elevated state, getting your dopamine running. And those are always good things. So if you're struggling consistently to get and stay focused on things, number one, it, it could be your sleep. Like that's the main thing that I see is that people are just not getting enough sleep or enough good sleep. And so I would spend a lot of time really getting that dialed in because that alone is going to pay massive ramifications down the road. Second then is your exercise, like moving your body and getting it active just keeps it so much easier to go into the flow state. And we know this, like uh, an object at rest tends to stay at rest an object in motion tends to stay in motion. Once you start getting momentum, like things become easier. And what's one of the interesting things about exercise for me is that, yeah, there's the physiological benefits of it, but more important I find are like the psychological cues of like, oh, I've done this thing. I've done this hard thing. And in my experience, the more you do hard things, the easier it becomes to do other hard things because you start to identify in your mind as like, I'm capable of doing this. I'm the type of person who can do hard things. And that's, I think exercise fitness is really a gateway drug for everything else that we're going to talk about here. So I start with that and with sleep and then nutrition. Like this is one that I still struggle with, honestly, because I tend to like put a lot of garbage into my face, but like the, the times where I felt best in my life are when I have my eating and my nutrition on point, like what goes in really defines what comes out. So that's one aspect is like yeah. your physiological state. If we can get that figured out, that's going to pay big dividends for hyper-focus. The second thing then is your environment design itself. 
Like if focus is really just the ability to resist distractions, like that's an easy way to define it, then we can make the game easier for ourselves by removing and eliminating distractions as much as possible. And so when it comes to environment design, I feel like we probably don't spend enough time thinking about how is my desk set up? How's my computer set up? How is, you know, like my auditory stimulus? How is my visual stimulus? Am I sitting in front of a window? You'll notice I got this big window to the side, but in front of me, it's just a blank wall, right? And so I'm not tempted to look over here because I'm looking here. I always have my noise canceling headphones right here next to me so that I can drown out any auditory noise. Because for me, the biggest distraction is always auditory. If there's a creak in the other room or something's happening, I get transported and I'm, I'm thinking about it. And then thinking about, you know, your sense of smell and thinking about your sense of touch. And these are things that you can control. If you look, I don't know if you guys can see it, but on my desk, I just have a bunch of candles over there. So I can control the olfactory sense of uh, getting primed for being in a state. And I find that that's a really, really powerful one. I also got this stuff right here that I use pretty regularly called Boom Boom. So this is like a, this is a cinnamon stick. And I also have one that's peppermint. And this is a really great way. You just take a quick hit of it. And I find that as part of like a focus ritual, this is a really good way to prime your physiology and say, we're going to start working now. And in the same way that like pro athletes never take the state or like never go onto the field without doing a warm up or going through a routine, same way that actors and, and performers, they all have a routine that they go through. I think there's a lot of value in establishing a focus routine where you say like it's gonna be five to 10 minutes very quick with maybe some breath work. It could be some um, visual cue work where you're saying, okay, when I start to do my focus routine, then the other side of that means I'm ready and primed to work. And I find just that little, that little bit right there can be really, really powerful. So we have our physiological state, we have our environment design. And then the last thing is the task itself. <laughs> a lot of tasks, are just by their nature very hard to get into a state of hyper-focus with. And so anything that we can do to manipulate that task, to gamify it, whether that's like trying to go for a high score or setting time limits on it, like anything that we can do to make that task inherently more engaging makes it so that we're more likely to actually go into the hyper-focus state with it. So those are just three things that I think about a lot in terms of like, what's my, what's my environment designed as? Where's my, my rest, my nutrition, my exercise state of being for my physiology, and then the task itself. What can I do to manipulate that thing to make it more fun? No, I think that's really, really good. I think that is a really good recipe to get people understanding that it, it doesn't, it's not a feeling that comes through. You can actually design this and you can make it repetitive over and over again. And if you're able to deal with that and you can do that, then it should be easy for you to get into that type of zone and get into that flow state. And you mentioned the routine and everything. The routine is extremely important in that respect and trying to design your environment and your day and your schedule, like you, you know, how you do that. How do you deal with, uh, you know, meetings and what is, how do you, is there anything you can do on your calendar side of things? Because I feel like there's a lot of people out there who, and including myself, I would try to segregate a lot of the creation time from sort of like the meeting time when you're sort of mm -hmm. interacting people. And there's a lot of stuff that the world demands of you because they're expecting you to do something for them, but then you can't focus because you're trying to figure out, well, I need to get stuff done now for yeah. me. And I don't want to be interrupted by 
exogenous factors, whatever, like meetings and all that stuff. How do you deal with your calendars? So this is a really big one. I would say this is maybe possibly even the most important one for me personally. Like my life really started to change for the better when I, when I started owning my calendar, like, because it, it I don't remember who said it, but mm -hmm. it's always stuck with me that either you own your schedule or your schedule owns you. And there is no third option here. So what that meant was I needed to start thinking about um, my calendar in a different way than I had previously, which was there, there's two times, there's two times that you can really be doing stuff, right? You have what I guess Paul Graham would call your maker time versus your manager time, right? And they're very different parts of the brain. And if you try to intermix them, you're going to be constantly frustrated. So what I did was I took my schedule and organized it so that from about whenever I wake up, which is usually sometime between five and seven, um, usually closer to the five side until about 1, 8, 1 p.m., my calendar is completely blocked off. You, my, my assistant, nobody can schedule anything during that time. That time is my, what I call my three to free. And those are the time when I'm working on things that are the most important that only I can do. And so that's usually creation. That's usually scripting or writing or doing whatever it is that makes, that's like my unique superpower. And so I don't let the world really get in my way, so to speak until I've, I've allocated that a time to creation from one onward, because I don't typically do my best creation work in the afternoons. I just, I, I like to, I take a nap, I get tired. And then like, it's just a different type, a uh, different side of the brain. Um, that's more active in the afternoon for me, at least that's when I do my meetings. And so if there's phone calls to be had, if there's investor calls, if there's team meetings, it's always going to be in the afternoon, usually between one and maybe five o'clock. And then at five o'clock, I go usually and do some jujitsu. I do two workouts a day, usually one in the morning, one in the evening. And then at the, in the evening, kind of winding down, maybe get another hour of work in and then start winding down before bed at like 10. So within that schedule, I'll take meetings um, between one and five o'clock. But my preference is to group those as much as possible onto singular days. So I try to group all of my team meetings, all my business meetings with like recurring on Mondays. And then every, um, at, also on Fridays, we have some recurring end of week meetings. And then if there's ever like podcasts or just random phone calls, we try to group those say on a Wednesday, right? So when I wake up and I know, like I look at my schedule for the day, I know, okay, this is my meeting day. And that just helps me because I'm not a super extroverted person. I'm not very, I'm not a very uh, eager conversationalist. It takes a lot of work for me to go into a phone call and like talk to strangers. And so it just helps me if I have like six calls back to back on one day, rather than maybe like two here and two there. And if you, if you, for me, at least, if I schedule a call at like one thirty and then another one at four, that time between those two calls kind of gets lost a little bit because I have a really hard time like getting deep into a task, um, knowing that I still have this other thing brewing. So I try to keep those, once I get started, just keep, keep flowing through them. Really cool. And I think a lot of people should try to do that. And then, yeah, you alluded to Paul Graham's article, which is really insightful as well, by the way, and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll probably link it in the show notes below because it is a, uh, uh, sort of a, a description of the world we live in today about, you know, 
the, the mind is so scattered and you have to really focus, especially if you're building something, whether it be a creator or you're an engineer, you know, you, there's a dedicated time where you need to really focus and not be interrupted by things that, um, that will take you away from that. You mentioned, uh, the three to, uh, what was it? Three to the three, 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 three. Yeah. Yep. That is, yeah, that's part of one of your, you know, mental models and systems. And I want to sort of dovetail into that because, mm-hmm. you know, that's really interesting to sort of learn about and. I think it might help a lot of people to understand a bit more about what that means. And there's more to that as well, right? So I think it's part of your sort of ice framework. Do you want to sort of give an intro into what that is? Yeah, hundred percent. So for, for a lot of people, I think, um, creators, engineers, like producers, you very easily can do a lot of stuff with your day and still end your day feeling like you didn't do anything. Because the to-do list is always, it's just always expanding. It's ever growing. And so the work expands to fill the time allotted to it. And we all allot our entire life to it. And so therefore most people end their day feeling like they lost and they, they never get this dopamine of feeling like I won, I did good. And so I started to chalk the playing field, so to speak, so that I could look at my day objectively and say, if I did these things, like this is what winning looks like. This is what needs to happen for me to have won the day. And if I do those things, regardless of how much else I get done, I will have won the day. So it doesn't matter if I win the game by one point or if I won it by a hundred points, like I just need to know at minimum, what's it look like to win the day. And so that really gave um, birth to what I call my two to do, my three to free and my five to thrive. So the five to thrive are the five really big projects that I'm working on in say a quarter or in a month. So they're big, they're really big things that are gonna move me and my company forward and that are high priority. So as I'm going through and trying to figure out what should I work on each day, it's probably in that that morning time, it's probably one of those, those five to thrive uh, pillars. So on each in, individual day, um, I have my three to free, which in the beginning for me was just a way of saying, if I can do these three things today, if I only, if I accomplished nothing else but these three things, I could look at my day and say it was a win, right? Like if you look at life through that window, cause you can only do so many meaningful activities in a day. And truthfully, there's often just one, maybe two things that if you just did those things and ignored everything else, like it would still be a massively awesome day. And so I was just trying to get to the root of like, what are those very few things that really, really matter? And they usually tie to the five to thrive, which is like, okay, if I want to write this book and get it published, then what would it look like to make meaningful progress towards that today? That would be, oh, you need to write uh, 3000 words. Cool. I'll sit down and I'll write those 3000 words. And regardless then of how many meetings I have at the end of the day, like if those all get pushed and all I did was write my 3000 words and take a nap and go for a walk, I can look back and be like, I won the day because I wrote those 3000 words and that's moving me towards this goal. But for a lot of people, what I found is there are still these things in life that need to get done that if they don't make time for, it still takes up cognitive bandwidth and kind of eats at them a little bit. So I introduced the two to do. The two to do are like those two to do things on the list that are like not very big and important, but like are pretty key in terms of like clearing mental space and not just creating baggage. So it's like, oh, you got to do the laundry. (laughs) You got to do the dishes. And like those things in the grand scheme, not super important, but I find just by making a little bit of time for them each day and then saying like, those are the two that I'm going to do today. And I'm not 
there's there's always a there's always a laundry list of things that could be on that. All I got to do is do these two. If I do those two and these three to free, then it's going to be a really good day. And within all of this then is you have to develop the skill of prioritization. You have to be able to look at all the things that are on your schedule. And, you know, for people who are running multiple companies or just have multiple projects, there's a lot of competing priorities and you, you can't by definition have competing priorities because there can only be one priority, one most important thing. The root of that word is like most important, right? So if we can't, if we can't objectively um, describe what are the most important tasks, then we're left to just kind of pick things out of the hodgepodge that in the moment we think would be beneficial. Um, so within all of this, there's a framework that I use, or I used to use more frequently. Now I don't use it as much as you kind of like develop an intuitive sense for how these things will shake out called the ice system, which is just, you rank order all the tasks in your life based off of importance, confidence, and ease. And this is just a, a mental model, a really simple one for looking at all the things that you got to get done and saying like, okay, how important is this really in the grand scheme of things? Um, give it a score uh, between one and 20. And then how confident am I in my ability to do this thing? Okay, give that a score of one through 10. And then how easy would it be to do this thing? Okay, give that a score of one through five. And the grand score then is gonna be like, if it was <laughs> if it was a perfect 35, you'd say that's the most important thing, do that thing. That's <laughs> scoring high on importance, high on confidence and high on ease. Yeah, definitely do that thing, right? And this isn't to like get over ideological about the category categories and be like, oh, well, that one's a 27 and this one's a 28. Therefore, I got to do the 28. You still have to express some human judgment in this and just recognize like this is a starting point to help systematize the process of setting priorities, which most people never do. And in the same way that they never sit down and say, what's it look like to win today? And because of that, because you never actually like set the rules of the game, you you end the day and you feel like you lost. So that's that's really what we're trying to avoid at, at the end of the day because I want to I want to end my day feeling like it was a productive day, like it was a good day. So if nothing else, I want to set that bar nice and low too, so that I can I can trip over it. Which is why I only have three things that I'm like I got to get those done. Do you prepare your day the night before or in the morning? Because for me, I like to do it in the evening, sort of just as I sort of. Uh, wind down for the night and trying to figure out what's on my plate for tomorrow. What do I, what's a win for me? What is my, if I was to visualize this um, and you know, what are the things that's going to make me uh, really satisfied that the days that I was able to achieve on that day, how do you prepare for it um, on your side? Yeah, I do the same thing. It's the night before. And there's, there's some key reasons for that. One is, when one of the mental models I adopt is thinking about future me and current me and future me, um, if left, if, if I wait to set out the schedule until like I'm in the moment, then my judgment is going to be clouded by uh, a lot of emotion and not just pure logic. Like it's going to be predicated on how I feel. So if I, if I wait to map out my day until I wake up, well, if I didn't sleep very well last night, if I'm a little bit sore from my workout or if I'm like a little emotionally tired, like whatever reason, uh, maybe I drank too much. Like now the schedule I set for myself is going to look very, very different than if I was in like a prime optimized state. Right. But in a lot of, in a lot of cases, if we, 
were to go and try to attack the, the optimal calendar, even in the suboptimal state, we would still accomplish a whole lot more. So instead of like creating our schedule when we're in this like suboptimal emotional state, it's all about setting it as from the ideal. And I don't think you can do that unless you have a little bit of distance from yourself because again, we're lazy or human brain wants to default to like what's um, easy and expedient, not necessarily to what's important. And so the night before you have enough distance from the activity itself that you're like, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to do this and this activity. I'm going to write that. I'm going to do this other thing. And you can set out this beautiful, perfect day for future you because current you doesn't have to do it. <laughs> right? Like current you is like, this is a problem for future me. Now, future me, that person just has to wake up and they have to look at the calendar and they might look at it and be like, damn, that's a hard day. But their, own, that their job is not to question the calendar. Their job is just to execute. And I found that mental model really simple is like to think of the master and the slave, like current me is the master setting the schedule. Future me is the slave. He just does what he's told. He just executes. And that's like one of the most powerful models of just disassociating yourself from your future self and current self and just recognizing in the moment, what is your actual job? If my only job right now is to do the schedule as it's laid out, like that's much easier. <laughs> that's much easier because all I got to do is just do what's, what's, what's being told to me rather than having to figure out what should I do and then trying to do it. Man, that's big. I mean, that's so good because I think that I didn't really think about it as the master and slave, but obviously it makes sense now because for me, you just want to be quote unquote on autopilot the next day or the future self. You just say, look, I, I have a task to do. I don't need to put a lot of cognition into it because my previous me already planned this out for me. All I have to do is just follow the recipe and just get stuff done. Yep. And I think that's really important, especially if there is resistance. And I think with a lot of creation, and there's a lot of stuff like, it's like, oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to get out of bed. I just feel like I can see the day falling out for me. And especially if it's not planned and you're not primed for it the day before and you're not really psyched for it, it can be a real hit and your day could just sort of be, be lost, right? Now, the, I think the hardest thing in this equation, and I, uh, probably a lot of people listening to this will, will resonate and they'll be like, yeah, that's the big, that's the issue is that because it's you setting the calendar for yourself and then you that's expected to execute it, it's very easy to just be, to, to give yourself grace and be like, ah, oh, I'll do it tomorrow to kick the can and give yourself the pass because what is the consequence? What are you really going to do to you? You're like, you're not going to put yourself in prison you're not going to punish yourself really. And so the question then becomes, how do you hold yourself accountable? And I can't remember who, I think it was Naval who says that your self-esteem is really just the reputation you have with yourself. And if you are the type of person who makes promises to other people and then goes to the nth degree to, to, to maintain those promises and to hold them true because it's so important. Like if I tell you, I'm going to be somewhere, I'm going to be there. I'm going to do my best to do this job. If that's, if that's you, but you're the type of person who also is making promises to yourself and saying, Oh, I'm going to write, um, in the morning, I'm going to go to the gym in the morning. Then you don't do it. And you're breaking your promises to the most important person in your life, which is you. 
right? And if that's the case, and you each time you do that, you're casting a vote for this identity as the person who breaks their promises, who isn't isn't reliable, who isn't accountable. And so for a lot of people that are maybe struggling with self-esteem and with identity issues, and this was definitely me for a really long time of like, oh, I'm lazy, I'm unreliable, I'm unfocused. Like the very first thing was, well, stop breaking the promises that you make to yourself. So if you say that you're gonna do this, do it. Because three of our core values at Invictus, which is our, our real estate private equity firm is, number one, show up. Because as Woody Allen says, 80% of success in life is just showing up. And it's so simple, but it's true. Like just show up. Number two is do what you say. So if 80% of success is just showing up, then the other 20% in my book is just doing what you say. And if you can, if you can do those two things in the, the arena of your singular life where nobody else is watching, nobody else is casting judgments because nobody else gets to see your to-do list. They don't know whether or not you did it. If you can be the audience that holds like yourself accountable to this, you show up, you do the work, you, there's nothing, there's literally nothing that you can't accomplish. And I, I truly believe that. Yeah, I know that's really, really good. And I think for, and, and I think I'm sure that's going to help a lot of people as well. It's just like, you know, do the thing, obviously don't burden yourself. If you're over ambitious yes. and you say, oh, I'm going to do this and this, obviously there is balance, right? And you're not realistically, you're not going to be able to achieve anything. And that sort of segues into sort of now figuring out, okay, well, if there is stuff to do and I need to get it done, how do I then put that on paper or how do I put that into a system that I can manage? Right. And there's this concept of obviously the second brain yeah. and it's not new. It's been around for a while, but now with all of the advent of like tools like Notion and Evernote and all those things, right. You can really put stuff um, in a system, store it away and then not have to really think about it. Right. And you can just sort of just pull from that system as you need to. Mm-hmm. So what's, what is obviously maybe give a sense of what is the second brain? But how do you use it effectively and how do you use it to tie in with all the systems that we just spoke about, the models and everything to really give you the best chances for success? Yeah, the second brain is a really interesting concept because if you're if you're anything like me and whether or not you have ADHD, I think everybody struggles with this is that throughout the day you have just tens of thousands of random thoughts going through your brain. And some of them are really good. Some of them are completely stupid. And like a lot of them are just repeat thoughts, but there's nothing worse than perseverating on a thought over and over and over, unless it's something that you're going to take action on in the moment, or you're perseverating on it with intention to try and find a solution or to problem solve it. But like the anxiety or just circling back and forth on a thought that in the moment, there is no resolution. You're just wasting cognitive bandwidth trying to remember the thing or just trying to, I don't know, to almost self-soothe in a lot of ways where it's like, oh, what's, what's going to happen tomorrow when I have that conversation with so-and-so? It's like, that doesn't matter. Like right now, like mulling it over and over and over isn't going to help. So as much as possible, I find it's helpful to try and close cognitive loops by extracting these things from my brain and putting them into a second brain. And that at the core, that's really all the second brain is. It could be a journal, it could be Notion, it could be Asana, like I use a combination of these tools. But really the goal is to close cognitive loops so that your brain isn't perseverating on them by removing them and then being able to look at them later 
and then with intention craft a, a plan for executing against it or to be able to just be able to say, you know what, like I had this thought, I had this great idea in the shower, it's down. I don't plan on doing anything with this right now, but it's here, so I'm not gonna lose it. So maybe in six months when I come back, it's still there, right? And just the, the, the fear of losing an idea just disappears because now you've retained it. The hardest part of the second brain concept for a lot of people is the actual implementation. Like, how do I, how do I actually maintain this thing and use it consistently? And there's a ton of resources out there. My, my recommendation is that you don't overthink it. You don't overcomplicate because you can make a massively complicated second brain on, on notion. I've seen people do this where the goal isn't to create a, like a true functioning second brain with like elaborate filing systems. And it like at a certain point, you're just busy, but not being effective. And so what's the minimum viable product when it comes to creating a second brain that allows you to get things out of your head so that you're, you're just carrying less mental load. And that way, when you do try to go into hyper-focus, like you're sitting down to create something, you're not also trying to balance all this other junk in your head because you know it's in a safe place and that you're going to make time to come back to it. And so don't, don't let the, and this is where productivity systems, like I, I love productivity. I love the concept of it. I do I watch a lot of videos. I like consume a lot of content on it because I think it's a really fascinating subject, but at a certain point, learning more about productivity or just trying to like infinitely refine your system is less beneficial than just executing whatever, um, cobbled together system that you have. In a lot of cases, it's just better instead of trying to make a better ax to just take the ax you have and go chop wood. Just go chop more wood. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good point because there is a point of, I guess it's sort of like, you know, you, you're, there's this notion of like, you, you're not being productive, you're just being busy, right? And you, at that point, you when you start to realize that, it's like, well, you're not really moving the needle for you anyway. You're just trying to make excuses for yourself where you're doing so much of these things, but they're not really helping you. So at the end of the day, it's kind of like, well, just get to work. And yeah. I think it's interesting uh, where that is, again, there's the resistance to that, right? And mm -hmm. and I think there's Stephen Pressfield wrote a book, The, the uh, War of Art or something like that. Yeah. And it's really just this notion of like, how do you push through that? And then to connect with something beyond yourself to make sure that, look, just show up every day, be a professional instead of being an amateur yeah. and, you know, how do you, you know, focus on the task at hand? Um, what are your thoughts on that, on that sort of being turning pro and just sort of like say, look, it is what it is. Like just, just get stuff done because if you're, <laughs> you know, a professional tennis player, you know, and you need to train, you know, it doesn't matter if you're feeling like crap on the day, you just got to go to training and, yeah. or, you know, you just got to do your thing. How do you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, my, my one of my favorite quotes on this is amateurs wait until they feel ready. Professionals just get up and go to work. And mm. it's, it's so interesting. I get questions all the time from people who are like, oh, I want to write a book. I want to be a writer. Like, what, what do I need to do? And I'm like, it's simple. You want to be a writer? Just write. Writers write. That's all they do. Like, that's just go write something. You're a writer. That's, it's so simple. Like, Oh, I want to be a published writer. Okay, go go write something and then go publish it. It's super super simple. They don't need to overcomplicate this. But like, it's interesting. Um, I think as a culture of creators and and uh, entrepreneurs, like 
there's this idea of habits and routines and rituals. And one of the things that we talk a lot about as a community, it seems like is morning routines. Like what's your morning routine? I, oh, I need to wake up early and I need to get my 12 ounces of water. And then I need to do my cold plunge. And then I need to do my meditations, my three gratitudes and like really elaborate morning routines that at the end of the day, take up like three hours. And then you're like, okay, well, what's the point of this? Like, I don't have anything against morning routines as long as they're serving you and that they actually have a purpose. But when the the routine becomes a crutch to delay the activity, then it's a problem. And a lot of people, I think they lean on these habits and rituals, these morning routines, because they like, oh, I can't do the work until I'm primed and I'm optimized and I've done all these things. And at the, and at the end of the day, like if you are dependent on those activities to go and be in the ready state, like you're always going to be vulnerable and weak. And so the goal I think is to create the smallest ritual, smallest habit of getting into the work. And for a lot of people that could just literally be, you grab your headphones, you grab your keyboard and you go like the key, the cue could just be grabbing the headphones and going. And the people that I know that are like the best performers at everything that they do, they don't, they don't need elaborate, uh, routines to, to get in the moment. They just, they have a way of priming themselves and it's quick. It's effective and to the point. And so if you're maybe a person out there who does a lot of research on like, Oh, what's the optimal morning routine? What's the billionaire morning routine? It's like, it's probably doing less than you're already doing and more work. Like it's probably just doing more work, getting to the work sooner. <laughs> now that's, now that's yeah, not to say no. that you shouldn't make time for all those things. Like I do a lot of those things. I enjoy them. I, I, but they don't, they serve a very different purpose than saying, Oh, I'm using this to get primed to do the work. So if you, if you want to go do a cold plunge, cool, go do a cold plunge, but like, don't, don't feel like you have to do that before you can do the work because that just becomes a crutch. And it just further delays the, the thing that you need to do anyway. What is your thoughts on, you mentioned, you know, there's one thing that I've been thinking about for a long time. I don't know if it sort of ties with, with the mental model, but it's all about sort of energy and entropy. And it can be kind of, uh, you know, interesting because obviously it's a physical, it's a physics scientific concept, but it does apply to, um, you know, the way we live our lives. Do you want to just give a quick one, you know, overview of your thoughts around sort of moving from, High, low entropy to high entropy and, and sort of what entropy is, because I think, and then how does that tie in with everything? Because I think there's a lot of interesting people who would love to learn about this. It's a very, uh, it's an interesting philosophical concept, but maybe we can just talk about it for a little bit. Yeah. I'm always looking for ways uh, like to, to intermix interdiscipl interdisciplinary concepts um, and find connections. So like this, that's really what a mental model is, right? At the end of the day, we say like, oh, this this concept is first principle, which is true in chemistry. How can we apply it to what we're doing over here in storytelling? And there's a lot of interconnection, but also I encourage people to not get too lost into, into the specifics because a lot of times like people will be like, well, that formula doesn't quite exactly work out. It's like, no, no, it's not about being perfectly right. It's about moving in the direction of right. Right. So like, that's really what a framework is, is not trying to say like, here's a specific thing. So within entropy, the way I think about this is that it's it, it's known that the universe, if left to its own devices, is in a state of constant decay um, towards entropy, right? Like ever increasing amounts of chaos. And so 
if we leave a system, you as an individual being, say, the system and your life being the universe or whatever, if you're not injecting energy into that system, if you're not injecting order and stability, then you're going to keep slip sliding backwards. And this is where like that idea, like there's only two directions in life for a human. There's either forward or, or there's backwards. You're either making progress or you're declining into entropy. And when you start to think about it that way, then every activity that you do can really be looked through the lens of like, okay, is this moving me toward me in my, my state towards a, a place of um, order and stability uh, or greatness as we, as we talk about, or is it moving me towards a place of chaos and like entropy? And for me, a lot of my life, because I didn't have systems and I didn't have a way of injecting energy correctly into the system, I was just sliding backwards all the time. And I would notice it in my health. I noticed it in my relationships. I noticed it in my, my work. And so just recognizing that you can't stay static, like nature abhors a vacuum. So like this idea of like, oh, I'm just going to tread water and stay put. No, you're just running out of energy. Treading water is just a way of running out of energy and eventually you're going to drown, right? So you're either swimming towards shore. Maybe you're trying to tread water to recover for a bit so you can keep going forward. But at the end of the day, like there are only two directions. And within that, then I find that there's an interesting correlation between injecting energy into the system and the speed in which we inject energy into the system. And it's really fascinating that the people that I know in my life who are the most successful, it's not always that they're doing infinitely more, like they're injecting more energy into the system. A lot of times they're injecting the same amount of energy as I am. They're just doing it faster. <laughs> and that has so many more profound effects, whether that's like, you know, when I started writing, I started writing 3000 words a day, which is a ton of words. The reason for that was because when you look and you hear like Malcolm Gladwell says it takes 10,000 hours to reach mastery in an activity, which sure or not is a helpful framework. Again, it's in the, the trajectory of truth. Well, in writing, there's that, that's not a good corollary because if I spend 10,000 hours, but I only write 10 words, I probably didn't get any better. Right? So in writing terms, what people talk about is that you need to get at least a million words out of you before you start getting to those good words. So you got a million crap words you got to write through. And I, did, I was like, okay, well, if it's going to take me a million words to start writing good, then I should just start writing a ton, which was 3,000 words a day for a year. That is about a million words. And I figured at the end of this year, I'll have gotten all my crappy words out and then I'll be ready to start writing good words. And it could have been the same amount of energy. Right? I could have written a thousand words and it would take me three years, but the results, because we injected it into the system so much quicker was so much more drastic. So by the three year mark, I had already written 3 million words rather than just a million. And then we had published 10 novels, right? And so the speed at which you do things often matters more than just the, the total amount of energy you're trying to input into the system. So, you know, I guess the takeaway here is that, you know, all systems are tending towards chaos. And so because of that, it's up to us to make a decision on whether we want it to leave it to its own devices and then it will sort of decay and collapse. Or if you really care about it and it, it means a lot to you, then you need to put the energy, put the effort in, put that time, which is a manifestation of energy in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And then trying to figure out, well, why, why does that matter to you? Because that's why building a company is hard. You know, building a good relationship is hard because those are ordered systems. 
and the closet audit, it requires energy to put into that. I feel like that's sort of the big takeaway. And then, then tying that back in with the creating part, the, the priority management the discipline is that that's energy. All of that, you know, preparing for your day, you know, putting in the effort and time to make sure that you can be the best self that you can be in building whatever you need to build. You know, that is a byproduct of sort of the entropy that we spoke about. Mm-hmm. Hundred percent, and like I think relationships are a really good example. Where if the relationship isn't everything that you want it to be, then the question you have to ask yourself is like, are you what kind of energy are you putting into it? Right. In a lot of cases, it's very clear. Like you're just not putting very much energy into it. Like it's very clear and obvious, and that holds true in all aspects of life. And so I think that's just a really easy mental rubric to say to always ask yourself like, how much energy am I putting into this, and how quickly am I putting it into it, and Sometimes yeah. you're putting the right amount of energy. You're just not putting it in, in a condensed period, a tight enough period of time. And if you just tighten the time in which you do the work, like, again, you go back to Parkinson's law, like the work expands to fill the time allotted to it. If we just allot less time to things, but we try to pack the same amount of impact into it, then the result is um, it's not it's not linear. It becomes quadratic. Yeah, 100%. What is um, the sort of segue into sort of the stuff that you are doing right now? Why did you decide to start a YouTube channel and podcast and newsletter? Uh, I think it's a great initiative and I think more people should do it. But what was the, what was the why for you? Why did you want to uh, do it? Because it's more work as well, you know, at the end really? of the day. And, you know, you could have easily just stuck with your current, you know, cushy life and, and not do this. Uh, but what was the impetus for you to start doing all of this stuff? So there, there's really three, three reasons. There's a personal reason, there's the altruistic reason, and then there's the business reason. The, the personal reason is, like I said earlier, I when I think about who I am as a person, I think of myself as a creator and a storyteller. And I feel the most fulfilled when I'm creating. There's something about the act of having something to look at that couldn't have come into existence without me that is incredibly fulfilling. And so that's why it was one of the reasons I like writing books is like, you have a book at the end, you're like, this might not be very good, but it wouldn't exist without me. And that's pretty neat. And so there's the personal side, which is creating podcasts and YouTube videos. Like it, it's deeply, deeply fulfilling. The, the other side of that is in creating, I think that's the final step to really understanding and mastering a topic. And you think about if you want to become a master, you have to learn, you have to do, then you have to teach. And it's in that teaching phase that you start to realize maybe how little you really know about the thing because your inability to articulate it uh, simply to somebody indicates that you don't know it well enough. And so for me, a lot of times, I don't really know what I think on a topic when I sit down to like, okay, what is the system that has served me well from a productivity standpoint? I don't really understand it until I try to explain it to somebody else. And it's in that process then that I come to a, a deeper understanding. And so in many ways, you know, my content might help other people with their lives, but it truly, it helps me much more because that, that process of sifting and fighting with my thoughts to try to express them clearly and coherently is way more illuminating for me than it will ever be for anybody watching it. So that's the number one, that's the personal side. The, the second side is the altruistic side, which is just, I was really benefited from tons of brilliant mentors, not just like 
people that I know, because a lot of times when people hear mentorship, they think like, oh, you know, this old guy or gal who like you meet at coffee shop and they take you out. Like, that's not how I really think about mentors. Like I have thousands of books in the other room. Each one of those people writing one of those books is a mentor. They, they shared, they put their time and their energy into this, this resource that now I get to, to participate with. And if it takes me six to 10 hours to read a book, that's six to 10 hours with this mentor that I've never met before, but that I don't need to meet them to like, to get the knowledge and the wisdom from them. And so I wanted to be that to other people. I wanted to be that mentor, even if they never get to sit down and meet me to be able to say like, oh, he, he helped me in some way. And, and I think that's really cool just to kind of pay it forward. The third one is the business side. So, but it's not the business side, I think, in, in the way that a lot of people think about it, which is like, oh, you're just trying to sell a course and you're trying to like monetize YouTube and all that stuff. It's not really that. What it is, one is I just have this goal. My great grandmother, when I was a kid, she, she was very old at the time. She was like 90 years old and she was sitting down and she's like, I hope to have grandchildren someday and that all have these five things. And she listed off five things. And for whatever reason, I remember a couple of them. And one was like, she wanted to have a millionaire. And I was like, okay, that seems like a low bar. It's like, she has a lot of grand, great grandchildren. Surely one of us is gonna hit that. She wanted to have um, a famous author. And I was like, oh, that one could be, I could probably do that one. And I'm a, I'm a fairly well known, but I think the way to be objectively, to be able to say I've hit that mark is to be like on the Wall Street Journal or New York Times bestseller list. So one of the reasons for building the audience is the next book that I write, I would really love to have hit that list. So building the audience I mean, when the book comes out, maybe we can get there. So that's that's part of the business strategy of that. Um, but even, even deeper, the deeper play on building up the personal brand and putting out all this content is a number of the businesses that I've built over the de last decade were, I was invisible, I, you know, window washing company or manufacturing company. They were built so that the business was the, the thing. And nobody knew that I was the one behind it or me and my partners, like, and we did that intentionally. But when I left my last business in 2019, when I exited that, and I went to uh, start building Invictus, which is our, our private equity firm. What I realized was every time I do this, every time I sell a business and start again, I have to start from scratch because, because I don't have that reputation. I haven't been building in public. Nobody sees me. They don't just know. And because I've moved industries like from being in rock climbing to now being in real estate, like those, those wins that you had in one place don't carry over if nobody knows about them. And so I was like, well, I'm going to start building in public so that people know me and I have a reputation so that as I move from opportunity to opportunity, I don't have to start over from square one anymore. People will go, oh, yeah, I know Anthony. I've seen him before. Isn't he the guy that had this, this, and this, and the other thing? I want to work with him. So that's the business reason. It's not selling courses. It's not the monetization of YouTube or anything like that because that's in the grand scheme of things. Like we, we lose money on the YouTube channel for how much we put into it. Like we put a lot of time and energy into that thing, a lot of resources, so. Uh, I think there is definitely a lot of motivation for people to do this and to build their channel. They have their own reasons, but you know, as you sort of broke it down, right? You know, I think those three verticals are really, um, you know, they're, they're actually really genuine uh, goals to aspire towards. And yeah, from the business side, look, I'm sure a lot of people out there want to make money from it too. And, and that's great, but it's why not do it as well? You know, you can make money, do what you love and be helpful at the same time. And I think that's really, um, 
you know, gratuitous uh, for, for you to be part of that. And I think that, that sort of segues into a couple last topics before we finish off is really the, the money side of things. Um, and also, you know, what's next for you and, and how do you sort of help, um, you know, continue to help people out there? Because I think money can become somewhat taboo sometimes where you're trying to sell something or not. But I think money becomes more of a symbol than anything else. It's a tool that you can use. And when you're trying to espouse that, oh, you know, I made this much money or whatever, how do you make a million dollars? I think it's not about that. It's about how do you achieve the goals you want to achieve? And so that money will come anyway. And so, you know, what are your thoughts about your understanding of, of money? Because I think people strive for money and it's their primary uh, objective. Uh, but I think it should be the other way around. And if you love what you do and you are doing it really well, better than anyone else, I think the the financial rewards will come anyway. So yeah, we'd love to get your thoughts on that. Totally. I did a I did a poll uh, a couple months back on my community, and I asked them, which would you rather? Would you rather have a million dollars, or would you rather have the skills of a millionaire? And it was fascinating to me how many people answered I would like the million dollars because then I could buy I like I could I could educate myself I could I can acquire the skills and I was like that's all wrong like that's it's it's wrong because if you have the skills of the millionaire you can use that to make millions over and over and over right and so the goal isn't to isn't to make a million dollars it's it's not about the money it's about who you become in the process that enables you to make the money and so that's what you need to focus on is you, your skills, your relationships, your network, like your capacity, those things. And the, the money comes as a byproduct. And people, they, they lose sight of this because I get it. Like the money solves a lot of the big problems that they have in their life in the moment. So they think that needs to be the focus. But it's one of those you need to take a step back so that you can take two steps forward. And that step back in a lot of cases is just focus on you, your skill development, Focus on the opportunity that you're pursuing because I think Warren Buffett says it doesn't matter how, how hard you row if you're on the wrong boat, right? So like you have to make sure that you're a really good rower and that you're in the right damn boat. So like figure those two things out. And at the end of the day, like the money, you get to this point where like the money really, you, you might think it was the goal, but it's, it's not, it's really not like you could you could take all my money in the world right now. And I don't think I'd be any less happy than I am right now because I know I could get it back. I think I have a lot of like um, the skills that would enable me to do that. But like the money itself, it's, it's an end to a mean, but it's not the, it's not the end itself. And I think that's the part that we get, get really tripped up on now for creators in particular, like there's this, this interesting push, I think with creators, writers, I spent a lot of time with authors um, who are people who are trying to like, you know, make it and try to make that into a, like a viable career. And there's a lot of resistance from people about selling their art. And this might be the same with engineers. I don't know, but like this, this feel of like, Oh, you're selling out or the, the art itself should be the, the focus. And the way that I've always looked at art is that art is meant to be consumed. And so if it's not being consumed, you know, you don't, you don't know if it's good. And the only way that you can really know if it's good is if somebody's really willing to pay for it. And I think like the dollar really is like the the ultimate proof. Because what I discovered is like nobody values free. 
right? Like we have so much access to free everything everywhere. Like when I, when I wrote my first book, I gave it away to a, a bunch of friends and family. I don't think any of them actually read it. Right. So it's, it's not until they pay for the thing that you go, Oh, they really liked it or they liked it enough to separate themselves from their dollar for it. And whether or not they read it and then tell you about it later, like that's a different thing. But like that first, that first, um, ops or the first hurdle that you got to go over is like, are people willing to pay for this thing? And I think that can be a metric for quality that a lot of people, I don't know, like artists can give so hoity toity about this of like, um, like, oh, I, I'm just going to be an unrealized genius. Like then there, being an unrealized genius is no different than just being like unrealized period, right? Like obscurity doesn't do you any good. It doesn't change the world if nobody knows about it. And so you have to balance, I think, both the, the quality of the art itself and then figuring out how to actually get it to people. And I think that's the part that really trips people up is like, how do I put myself out there in the world so that they can see what I'm doing? Austin Kleon wrote a really great book about this called Show Your Work and another one called Artists uh, Steal Like an Artist. Both of those books, I think if you're the type of person who's like hearing these words and like, oh yeah, I kind of struggle with sharing my art because I feel kind of dirty about it, go read those books. And um, he does a much better job of articulating the whole conversation than I ever could. Because... Uh... I'll put those uh, uh, books in the show notes as well so people can get links to them as well. So if now I'm someone listening to this and I'm struggling, I don't know where to start, I don't know how should I get into this frame of mind, all of these models are interesting to me, but how do I start to implement them? Can you give a bit of a you know very high-level overview of how do I start doing this? How do I make sure that I'm on the path to success, especially if you are a creator or you're an entrepreneur doing something and I'm, you know, someone who's in a bit of a rut and, you know, nothing's going for me, but I need to have some discipline. I need to have some systems around me. What processes, models, systems, you name it, can you suggest to someone starting to learn about this for the first time? The, the first thing I would say to everybody is if you're a creator, there's something that you're, that you need to create, whether you're a writer, you're a painter, you're a coder, you figure out what that thing is, and then make sure that your schedule is designed in a way that you're actually doing that thing. Because I know a lot of painters who only paint once a week or when the spirit strikes them. And one of my favorite quotes is I don't have a muse. I have a mortgage. Right. Like the muse shows up when you show up to do the work and she punches in if you punch in. And that that's number one is like we can talk about these fancy systems. And so we're blue in the face. But at the end of the day, it's very simple. You just have to do the work. Number two, any system can be effective if you actually implement it. Even a really bad system is better than no system if you use it. And so don't don't try chasing the perfect thing. If you've heard some things in this conversation that resonated with you, start with those things. Because those those things that resonated, they probably plucked on something that you, like some some chord inside of you where you're like, ah, yes, I think that's the thing I need to work on. So start there. And it's not a, it's it's not about trying to go and implement the whole system perfectly from the beginning, because that's, that's not how it works. You're not gonna, I can't send you a UPS package with the perfect productivity system in a box where you pop it open. You're like, cool. Now we're good to go. 
it's it's a process of like slow implementation and what works for me might not work for you and what works for Barry is might, might not work for me right so like you have to take the pieces that resonate that will work for you plug them in and you have to not be afraid to discard the parts that don't make sense and for me my systems are constantly evolving because who i am today is different than i was a year ago versus three years ago and so my systems have to constantly change and update and we can't be too ideological about saying well this is how i've always done it therefore this is how i need to always do it right you have to be constantly experimenting and and, and tweaking things to say okay it, does this still serve me for a long time for instance i did gratitude journaling for like four years In the beginning it was great by the end of it for the last like year and a half i literally was just going through the motions and I was just writing things down that I was grateful, grateful for with air quotes. But at the end of the day, like I didn't feel the gratitude. And so I was checking the box, but the system no longer served me. It took me a really long time to realize like, what am I doing this for? Like it doesn't work anymore for me. And part of you might feel like, oh, I'm just doing it wrong. No, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It just might mean that you've outgrown it or it's time to try something different. So whatever you're going to do as you're trying to implement these systems, just recognize that it's, it's not going to be a perfect one-to-one. -one. What I'm telling you might not perfectly work for you, but start small because the game is all about consistency, not intensity. So a little bit, a little bit of systemization is better than a whole lot that you never use. So if you can show up every single day and you can start like building for 10, 15 minutes towards time blocking your calendar and then figuring out what's your three to free and just focusing on those and then figuring out what's your focus ritual, you know, like just a little bit every single day. And then you'll get to the point where you have a, a fairly robust system, but in the beginning, it, it's not going to look like much. So don't, don't get too hard on yourself. Cause I know so many people that just go hog wild up out of the gate and then they lose all steam because it's not coming together fast enough. Yeah. Great advice. I think uh, a lot of people take a, a lot of uh, good stuff out of that. What is uh, a couple, two, two last ones. Uh, and I like to ask this for everyone who are sort of, uh, sort of doing really good stuff is what's your daily routine. Um, and I know we spoke about this, but, uh, you know, not everyone needs to have one, but it was just interesting to hear about, uh, what your day looks like. Yeah. So like most days I'm waking up some, sometime between five and seven, I don't have an alarm. I just wake up when my body wants to wake up. I try to go to bed at the same time every night, sometime around 10, 10 30 ish. I'm usually falling asleep. I'm in bed almost every night at 10 and then reading until 10 30. So my morning starts, no alarm, just whenever my body decides it wants to get up, because I think it's really important just to listen to your body and let it be the thing that dictates. If I had a, if I had a really hard workout the day before my body needs a little bit more sleep and I'm not going to deny it that because, because I'm like being ultra ideological about my routine or something. But once I do wake up, then I usually drink, I try to drink, um, about 30 ounces of water. Sometimes I'll put some, uh, electrolytes in there so I can just get some water back into my body. Cause we get, I'm a mouth breather when I sleep. I try, I've been working on sleeping with mouth tape to try and like sleep, sleep uh, breathe through my nose, but I lose so much water at night. I get dehydrated. So first thing I do is I drink and then I take a cold shower for two minutes. And that's, that's the thing that I do, um, through certain phases. I do it as a daily discipline practice because it's hard. I don't necessarily do it for physiological benefits. I do it because I don't want to do it. As soon as it becomes easy and I become complacent with it, where it's like, oh, it's not a big deal anymore, I stop doing it. 
And so th the whole goal of building discipline is to do things that you don't want to do that are hard for you. And so that's my current daily discipline practice. I've been doing it for about three months. And um, the last time I went through cold shower cycle was like a couple of years ago and then it got easy. And so I stopped doing it. Once it gets easy again, then I'll go, I'll probably go back to meditating because meditating is really, really hard for me. But I, even with that, like I did it for years and I got to a point where it became easy and then it was no longer serving me. So I do my cold shower. I usually sit down for five to 10 minutes right after that, do a financial audit where I just look at my bank accounts, write it out in a journal, just kind of tracking the day, the spending and earnings from the day before, just to keep a finger on it. Um, from there I go work out for an hour or two and then I come back and then I start working. That's, that's, uh, starting getting into creating time. So that's the beginning of the three to free. And I'll, I'll be doing that until about one around one. I stop eat usually. So I'm an intermittent faster, usually eat, um, around one or two in the afternoon. And then I might get sleepy at that point and take a nap, depending on what my meeting schedules look like. I might try and squeeze that in there. And then my afternoons are usually just meetings, <laughs> tons and tons of meetings. And then in the evening, I go do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, come home, wind down with the girlfriend, maybe watch a little bit of Netflix right before bed. And then that's, that's it. That's the end. <laughs> There's also the sitting down right before bed and doing the time blocking for the next day. There you go. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit of a mouth breather myself when I, when I sleep. It's, you know, I probably, there's a tip, you just put tape over your mouth and then mm -hmm. see how that pans out. But I don't know if I'm going to suffocate during the evening. But I've, uh, I've been I, doing it for like a week or two and it's, it's so horrible. I, I'm such a mouth breather. I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's crazy. I, I think the, the, the daily routine is... Um, it's everyone's different, but you know, again, it's the routine part. You just got to find something that works for you, you know. And if if it doesn't, just keep experimenting. Uh, and yeah, definitely, you know, having a, a good way to sort of um, you know fulfill your day and and being able to time block and do a lot of stuff. I think that that really helps. What's the best way for people to connect with you? I know you've got some good stuff happening. Obviously, I'll put everything in the show notes: YouTube channel, podcast, newsletter, uh, Twitter all that stuff, anything else, uh, that, you know, but if someone did want to reach out to you, sorry, um, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah. You know, I, I try to be pretty responsive in the, in the DMS on Twitter and Instagram. So if you guys want to get in touch and have a chat, um, you have questions or something that you want to share, that's usually a good place. Um, you're also welcome to shoot me an email. Um, I try to, those <laughs> Those I'm a little bit slower with. Um, I try to be very regimented with when I check emails because that could just turn into a black hole. But um, come find me on Twitter. Come find me on Instagram. Those are I hang out there a lot. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for chatting, man. It was really good to sort of uh, learn more about you. And I think the stuff that we spoke about is going to immensely help a lot of people. So definitely we'll get this out there. And uh, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, dude. I appreciate you having me. I hope this hope this brought somebody some value out there. So if it did, do me a favor, go leave a review for the for Barry's podcast because it's impossible to get people to leave reviews. So do do them a solid. Go go drop a review. Sounds good. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you everyone for tuning into this episode. If you like this episode, be sure to check out more by subscribing to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.
Thank mm-hmm. you.